Good evening. A political hit job. Political operatives gathered together to conspire against their opposition. They had never seen the other side so united and so motivated. It began when their leader put forward his candidate. Who would have thought one unknown man coming from out of nowhere could be the center of this scandal? He was an establishment figure with the support of the party in power, but the stakes had never been higher. The opposition leader made known to his party that they must do everything they could to oppose this man. A member of the party asked, what can we really do? He has the support he needs already. We must do everything we can to delay them, the leader replied. What happens when they keep moving forward? Another asked. We must accuse him of something publicly, the leader stated. What has he done? What do we have on him? They asked. It doesn't matter. We don't need to prove anything. It just has to be something that he can't prove, something that would stir the people up. If that fails, we will attempt to turn those on the other side to betray him. We should have enough people bought and paid for to take him down, the leader concluded. I don't know, a member said. If this doesn't work, we may look like fools and may unite the opposition even more against us, he feared. The leader stared him down and said sternly, our very power is at stake if this man is allowed to succeed. We will continue to fight no matter what. We will develop new plans. We must make an example of him to discourage anyone from following in his place. Either way, we can't allow this man, Nehemiah, to succeed. I read that to you this evening to show you that tactics do not change. Opposition remains the same. This example could have been written a number of times with a number of different names in it. It goes to show you that whatever you try to accomplish will be opposed, even in the worldly sense. Now, I'm not trying to make comparisons between what's going on today and, and what has happened back here in Nehemiah. Although when we read this chapter, it will seem very familiar to what we've seen take place just recently. And what I wanted to do is to galvanize us and to ask the question, what do we do and how can we stand when the opposition comes against us? And what we're gonna see is that an attack on leadership is an attack to stop the entire work. It's not just to destroy one person. It's to destroy what that person is a part of. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to read through this chapter, and then we're going to go piece by piece like what I normally do. We're going to see what was going on at the time. We're going to see how Nehemiah responded. And what we want to take away this evening is what we took away last time, that with the proper faith and with the proper fear, the work of God will be successful. These are necessary things. So verse 1 of chapter 6. Now, when it, happened, now it happened when Simbalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, 
though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methabel, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have me be afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobias sent letters to frighten me. So it begins with uh, Nehemiah. What had happened in the earlier chapters as they were trying to divide the people, as they were trying to stop this work, we saw that it caused the people to unite. Uh, it caused the people to band together in a defensive manner, and they were able to gain strength and momentum in this, and they only worked harder because they didn't feel comfortable leaving the work to just um, be lazily done. It was, we're working, if we're not working, one sleeping, one standing watch. The only time we take our clothes off is to wash them, and we put them back on and get back to work. It was something that every, all the cylinders were going. And the people realized, their enemies realized, that they weren't going to be able to stop this work the way that they were going about it. And so they decided to go after Nehemiah himself. And they figured that if they could take down Nehemiah, then this work would be stopped. And so it's just a reminder to us that those that are leaders in our church, those that are leaders in the body here, it's important to pray for them 
because as the work gets going, the more that we unite, the more that we come together, attacks are going to come to them. So we need to hold them up in prayer. Um, Nehemiah is an example to us of the proper faith and the proper fear, and we're going to see that in a few examples. As we take it, the first example comes, uh, they're writing these letters back and forth. They're just sending them, sending them, sending them. And what's so interesting is as they're sending these letters, Nehemiah keeps sending the same response. Thanks, David. The whole point of these letters to get him to travel, he would have to travel a day to meet them in the plane. He would have to meet them for a day, and it would take a day to travel back. Now, we would assume that if he traveled there a day that they were going to do harm to him on the road at one point in time. But even if they didn't, the point was just to delay the work, to stop the work, to try to set up maybe some scheme. Whatever they meant to do was not good. And Nehemiah is in the middle of a work, and he says, I don't have time for distractions. Why would I leave what's going on here to go meet with you? Uh, there is no purpose in that. So one of the things that we see in order to continue to do the Lord's work, um, we have to say no to distractions. What are distractions in our lives today? What are the things that come between us and the Lord's work? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it our jobs? Is it sports, recreational activities? What is it that we do that is a distraction from the work that the Lord has us to be doing right now? And I want to be clear that those things don't have to be a distraction as long as you remember your real purpose here, to be a servant for the Lord Jesus, to be a testimony for him. So when we go into work, our goal is to be a testimony for Christ. It isn't to make money. It isn't to climb the corporate ladder. It isn't to reach a certain promotion. The goal is to be a testimony for Christ. When we go to play sports, it isn't to be uh, the greatest athlete that the world has ever seen. It is to be a testimony to the families that are around you, to be a beacon for the gospel, the good news to go out. So it's not to say that these things that we all do in everyday life are all distractions. But it is to say, are we going into it with the right attitude, and is the Lord's work being accomplished? Or are we putting the Lord's work on the back burner while we do what we want to do? That's the question. For Nehemiah's day, the work was simple. Build the wall. How do you know if the people are doing the Lord's work? They're building the wall. You can see it. Ours is a little bit different because the Lord is building his church. And the church is made up of saints, people. So the Lord's work is to preach the gospel. The Lord's work is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be pure. The Lord's work is to exercise spiritual gifts, to encourage the saints and to build up the church. There are certain things that the Lord has put in us to do that, thankfully, we can do anywhere. It's not specified to a certain place in a certain time where this tiny work is accomplished, but also to remember that the Lord has called us to be worshipers. And it's so funny that during the day, we can be focused on so many other things. And when it comes to our own private prayer and our own private reading of scripture, that can always wait till tomorrow because that's not really pressing. That doesn't really have to get done today. Not like mowing the grass or changing a light bulb 
or taking out the trash, those things must get done today. But to speak to the Lord, the God of all creation, that can wait till tomorrow. And Satan uses these things to distract us from God's true purpose. And we have to remember that God's true purpose starts in us first to be changed. And so what I want you to do is to, as Nehemiah did, he's in charge. He's got everything going on. He's been given a work. His work is, is simple. This is what I'm supposed to do. These letters are coming, and he says no. So I want you to ask yourselves, what do you have to say no to? What do you have to turn down so that you can continue to do the Lord's work? It may just be your attitude. Change of attitude may do the trick. So this is Nehemiah's answer. He knows that they're coming to do him harm. Um, he asks them a question, why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And we have to remember that Nehemiah's decision just doesn't impact him. It impacts all the people if he were to just up and leave and be gone for a few days. Since this didn't work, you would think the opposition would just give up, that they would just stop. But what we see with the opposition is that it never gets tired. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't give up. It keeps going, and it actually increases in its strength. So since Nehemiah wasn't responding in the way that they wanted to, it says in verse 5, Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Um, the Jews were actually known for rebellion in the past. This isn't an uncommon thing for the J Jews to, you know, deny foreign rule. Uh, we're going to see that even after this, this is a problem throughout their history. But in Nehemiah's day, they had no plan of rebelling. Nehemiah had no plan of being a king. But you're going to see that people with power assume that everybody else wants power. This is just a, a natural way of things. If there's a person that has power and somebody else comes alongside, immediately they're thinking, this guy just wants power. That, that's why he's doing this. Um, Nehemiah is actually just doing it for the Lord. And he just realized that he was in this position where he could achieve these things because of his relationship with the king. So Nehemiah, as we saw in the last chapter in chapter 5, he actually does these things without compensation. Um, he, he's, he's having all of these people over in his house for dinner. He's providing for the people. And he's actually setting a lot of things straight. Uh, there was a big issue with money at the time in Jerusalem. And we see that Nehemiah comes and he puts things in order according to God's word. So Nehemiah has become a very respected person, and so they make this accusation. Now, when we saw that problem with Nehemiah, when he had the problem in the last chapter, with all of the individuals there that were selling their kids into slavery to pay off their debts that they really couldn't pay off, Nehemiah came and he met them all face to face. And he dealt with the problem right then and there. And he made them swear to it. 
according to the word of God, this would be done this way. And everyone agreed. And the problem was solved. And then they moved on. What we have here is this open letter. I'm not a huge fan of open letters. Um, there was an open letter here not too long ago. And we see that the only purpose of an open letter is to cause division. Um, if you have a problem with somebody, if you have an issue with somebody, the scripture is very, very clear. You need to go to that person. You need to talk to that person. Like, you know, what's so interesting is there's actually very few scriptures that are as clear as, as that passage of what to do the first time, the second time, the third time, all the things that lays out the specific order, this all needs to be done, and this is how it should be handled. An open letter, obviously they did not care about Nehemiah. It's not like these people were actually worried that, you know, we think that there's some rumor going on and we need to clear this up so that we can talk to the king and let him know that everything's good and that there's really no problem. So you need to come and consult with us so that we can make this right. They didn't, they didn't care. The purpose was to harm Nehemiah's reputation. And so what we see in Nehemiah is how do you respond to that? What do we do? What do we do when we're in our daily life and somebody accuses us of something? Because I'll tell you this, if we all start living according to the scripture, we're gonna be accused of all kinds of things. Being bigoted, being homophobic, being, uh, you know, uh, that you actually believe the Bible, like a science denier, like there are a number of things that we could be accused of. How do we respond? This is a question. What is God really looking for in us? So Nehemiah, he sends a letter back and he says, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Basically, it's not true. You're making it up. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's consistent pattern throughout this book is that when opposition comes, the first thing Nehemiah does is he prays. He doesn't think back of what he's going, how he's going to defend these things, how he's going to keep the work to continue. Um, I need to go out and make a plea to the people. He prays to God, and he just says, God, strengthen my hands. He understands that the work is actually going to get harder. Here, the work is almost completed, and towards the end, this opposition is increasing. And so he says, strengthen my hands. So does the opposition give up? No. Verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehethabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. So this man is one of the Jews, and he is, seems to be a prophet. And uh, this man can't leave his home, so he calls Nehemiah to him. Uh, Nehemiah comes, and he gives him this prophecy. And he kind of dresses it up a little bit, um, that they are going to come and kill you, but the way to escape is to go into the temple, into the place which he actually cannot go. You must go in there, and you must hide to save your life. If you do not, they will come and kill you. 
So as we've talked about needing the proper faith, the other thing that comes out in Nehemiah is it takes a proper fear too. And when I say the proper fear, he has a, a choice here. Is he more afraid of man coming to take his life or disobeying the word of God? And I ask the question, what are you more afraid of? Do we really have a fear of going against what the word of God says? Does it cause us to question what we're doing, to make decisions that would please God because we fear disapproval? We fear what may come. Now, in Nehemiah's day, God had in the past struck people dead for going into the holy place. Um, that is something that has occurred. But we see that Nehemiah knew the scripture. And because he knew the scripture, he knew that this prophecy that this man was giving was not true. That it was made up. So when we think about these things, fear can be a crippling thing. It can be something that, you know, doesn't allow you to act the way you would like to act. And it takes time to develop this sense of the holiness of God and his greatness to really put God in a place where you understand that there's nothing worse than going against his word. And there are very few people that, that really reach that point. But we want to be people that encourage each other to do what the word says. This is having the proper fear. For us, I think the biggest fear we have is calling out and judging sin for what it is. Personally, the most problems I have ever seen take place is a failure to judge sin when it comes up. And there, there's, there's just something in us that says the word of God, it, it can't say that, it can't mean that, there's no way God would act like that. You know, I don't think it's right in this given situation. When it comes to our kids, there's this, there's this issue, you know, you have parenting now that uh, wasn't an issue when, when I was a child and uh, when most of you were children probably wasn't an issue. Whereas there's this real issue of discipline. Like if you were to spank your kid in public today, you'd probably be arrested. Like there would be like calls of, of just abuse, uh, of everything taking place. But the word of God is very clear that the parenting strategy, biblically speaking, is a physical discipline to train up a child, to teach them right for wrong. That there is this point. Now this doesn't mean that you go over the top. There's also restrictions put on that we don't do it to cause them to wrath, that we don't do it to cause them to, to run the other way. But there is a necessity for physical discipline. And now the world is saying, eh, you know, I, I don't think that's right. And many psychologists have written books on the proper way of doing things. Um, and we have what we have today, uh, the issue with, with children that have grown up with that attitude. But it goes beyond that. When sin comes up in our life, when sin comes up in the body, there may be a tendency to say, you know what, if we respond this way to this person, they might leave. They might just walk away and we may never see them again if we actually do what the Bible says. And right there you're making a decision. 
what are you really afraid of? Are we really afraid of this person over God himself? Or are we willing to say, look, this is what the word of God says. This person has a choice. They want to repent, it's fine, they can repent. But if they don't repent, this, not, this needs to take place. To me, that's the biggest issue we have on a, on a large scale, even as individuals. A sin comes up in our life and it's like, yeah, I'm dealing with it. You know, I'm working hard, I'm, I'm trying to overcome it. Well, obviously, you know, you're, you don't have a proper sense of who God is and what God has said if this is something that we think it's okay just to continue in. So what was an issue back here is the same thing. We see that these threats had worked in the past. Um, for, uh, you know, 140 years, the Israelites have been back in the land and whenever they got started to do a work, all the opposition had to do was come and intimidate them, and then work would kind of stop. And it would take a great leader to come up and to inspire them to get the work done. And as the leader was there, the work was accomplished. The minute the leaders were gone, the work went back and it stopped. It takes strong leaders to do the work. And so this is something that's continued from this time all the way to us. But if we have the proper fear the work will be successful. So what are you really afraid of? What distracts you from doing the Lord's work? Do you have the proper faith and the proper fear to be successful tomorrow in your daily life? Uh, we're going to continue. <clears throat> Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of, the, uh, heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Uh, it's so interesting that, you know, you would say, oh, what's Nehemiah about? Well, Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the wall. And yet here it's mentioned in a small verse, so the wall was finished. So you have to ask yourself, what is Nehemiah really about? And it seems to be this reestablishing of this proper faith and the proper fear so that the work can actually be accomplished. That there was this problem with the people that they'd gotten so far away and Nehemiah had got them focused on a singular task to work together, to unite, to work out the issues that they had amongst themselves. And once they were united and once this work was completed, we're going to see chapter 7 is like a break. There's a uh, recording of all these families, and from 8 to 13, you're going to see this revival take place over a period of time. But they needed to get to this point, and Nehemiah was the man that God chose to make this work happen. And it wasn't without opposition. There's a lot of things in the scripture that remind me of, of this. So the wall was finished. And one of them is in the Gospels when it says, and they crucified him. You know, you have so much of the gospel dedicated to this last week of Christ's life, from the triumphal entry until his resurrection. And what we see as the pinnacle, the event of human history, the death on the cross, the Bible just says, they crucified him. All of this work 
all of these things taking place, and yet when the work is actually finished, uh, the word of God records it so simply, and it was done. I think one thing that many of us have missed sometimes in our own life is that God, above all things, wants to see souls saved. And we start our day and we end our day and our focus is on ourselves, how we feel, what we're doing, what our goals are. We see that, you know, when, it's, when it records in, in this verse about the people around, it says that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. I'm going to say it was done by Nehemiah. They didn't say, what a great guy that Nehemiah is. If only we had a leader like Nehemiah. They didn't think that at all. They thought, I can't believe their God really did that. Their God is stronger than our God. Their God cares about them. In our own life, do we want people to think how great we are? Or is our desire for them to say, man, they, I don't know, but it seems like the Lord Jesus really takes care of that guy. It seems like the Lord Jesus cares for that person more. We have to show that the Lord Jesus has an attitude that he will care for all of the people around you the same way. But if we don't live our life with the proper faith and this proper fear, they don't see that. They just see another person grinding it just like they are, going for the same goals, trying to get the same things, trying to, to reach a higher status. So what are these things that are holding us back from the work that the Lord would really have us to do? These are questions that are uh, different answers for each individual here. My distractions are not your distractions. The work that the Lord has given me, the different people in my life are not the people in your life. We've talked about these things before. Are you concerned? Does it really matter? Say you were successful in everything you wanted to accomplish for yourself. Everything. You name it. Whatever it is. Dream as big as you want. You die. You open your eyes and you see the face of the Lord Jesus. And in that moment, you're going to realize how much of that all really mattered. Is what you're waking up to tomorrow worth Christ dying for? Do you have that feeling about the people around you? Because in this same statement, we have a similar statement that we say. This statement says, the wall was finished. We say, and I was born again. The Lord saved me. You know, the world and religion thinks that it's this long, painful, drawn-out process where you, you, you have to grind it, you have to do it, you have to achieve a certain status, and once everybody around you acknowledges that this person has reached a religious status that we approve of, they might, they might go to heaven. That's what the, the world sees. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible points out that God had in his mind that he would send his son to save all of these people because these people couldn't accomplish anything. 
They couldn't make it themselves. And so in sending his son to die for their sins, he realizes that even in that, he cannot offer salvation and charge for it. He can't ask them, you know, if you do these certain things, then I'll give you salvation. He says, I'm going to send my son. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to die for all of the sins. I'm going to accept that payment, and he is going to rise again on the third day, showing that it's accepted, and all you have to do is have faith that that work is enough to save your soul, that you believe my word. There's going to be many people that say, well, I believe that Jesus exists. I believe that he is God. I believe all of these facts. It's not about the facts. It's about a relationship. And it's not just, do you know about the Lord? It's, does the Lord know you? It's amazing to me that in this entire book, what we would say, the purpose of this book is the rebuilding of the wall, is mentioned in a quarter of a verse. The wall was finished. And we can say the same thing tonight. The work is finished. The Lord is risen. Sin has been conquered. These are all simple statements. You can be saved right now. The world would say, that's not fair. That's not right. This person could have lived a terrible life. This, this, this could have been the worst person on the face of the earth, and you're going to let them in before this nice man who practices this, you know, own religion that he's made up, but he's, he's honest and sincere. You're going to let this person just because they believe in Jesus? That's what God's word says. Do you believe it? It's hard to believe that it's that simple. It was the hardest thing for me to overcome, the simplicity of salvation. The wall was finished. What did the people in Jerusalem really need? They needed to see God move. Not only did the people around recognize that God did this, but the people recognized God's behind us. God, God is with us. We finished this wall, and you have to, I mean, the, the low estimates of this wall is a mile around, 25 feet thick, and almost 50 feet high. Those are the low estimates. It's a big thing. And we're talking, when it mentioned all of the people building it, not skilled laborers, goldsmiths, jewelers, perfumers, 52 days. I don't know anything that's really been done in 52 days. They needed to see God move. And this is true throughout their history. When you think back, David and Goliath, you have two armies standing on opposite sides of a battlefield. And every day, this man that is bigger and meaner and stronger than everybody that the children of Israel have on their side comes out 40 days and like just berates them, humiliates them, intimidates them, mocks them. Give me a man. Give me a man. And every day, there's not a man that steps forward. Whole army of people. And what we understand was that God wasn't looking for a man that was as big as Goliath. He was looking for a man that was small enough to realize he needed to trust God to accomplish it. So David comes along, this small, skinny, what we would call a boy, 
and they say, well, you need to put armor on. This is the way you battle. And he says, look, that's not how I, that's, no. I'm not used to these things. I'm not going to do it this way. And he goes out there with the things that he's trusted, with the things that he's used to. And we'll see that as he throws that stone and as he kills Goliath, they didn't say, oh, David did this. They saw the hand of God that day strike down Goliath. Elijah on Mount Carmel. All of this stuff going on, all of these prophets on one side trying to call down fire from heaven. And Elijah looking like a homeless man with a, uh, you know, a hair as a, as a girdle. Goes over there, pours water on top of the sacrifice, calls down and fire comes down. When the people are emboldened, they need to see the hand of God move. But we see that there's this need to get back to doing what the Lord's work is that needs to be done. So you're not going to see the Lord's hand move until you get started on doing the Lord's work. He's given you everything you need. We need to get back to the work. We're going to continue real quick, finishing up chapter 6, verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Johanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Even though the work was finished, the opposition does not stop. And we're going to see that what we would see as the work was just kind of like the, the introduction. The real work is about to start. The work in the people's hearts. The work to draw them to the Lord himself. And we're going to see that take place. We were going to get into chapter 7. We're not going to get into chapter 7 tonight. Um, it's a lot of names and uh, we're not going to do that. But the one thing that I want you to see in this portion of opposition through chapters 5 through chapter 6 is that the proper faith and the proper fear are necessary things. And they're very easy to evaluate. The question is, are you going to take them seriously? The morning is going to come quick. Our week is going to start up again. And it's very easy to just get back to taking care of ourselves but we need to be ready to wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? Who would you have me talk to? Who would you have me lift up in prayer? Who would you have me call and encourage? What do you really want done? What do you really want accomplished? Because we won't have the next day or the next day or the next day guaranteed. We need to be focused on what do you want done today? And this is the pattern we have in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man that when he faced problems, he spoke directly to God about it. What do we do? I know for me, I complain. The first thing I do is complain. Then after I get done complaining, then I talk to the Lord about it. Change of attitude. I just need to talk to the Lord first. What needs to be done? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this uh, time you've given to us, uh, this book of Nehemiah. Um, We thank you for a a character such as his. Father, we pray that we would have a light character, um, that we would be willing to put your word above everything else in our lives, that we would have our Lord in mind first, that in all of these things we would seek to please him, that we wouldn't go about our day this coming week just thinking about what would satisfy us, but what you would desire to accomplish through us and in us. 
So, Father, we do pray that we would submit ourselves um, as a sacrifice to you, a living one. And, Father, we just thank you for all that you've done for us, for your son, for the salvation that he offers, for this eternal life that we now have. May we live it for him. We ask this in his name. Amen.